Well, good morning, church. Oh, come on. Good morning, church. And we're glad you're here this morning. It's great to be back. I was out last week, had some silly thing called COVID, and so I was out, but so glad to be back, feeling great. And I know we had many were out last week. I hope they're feeling better. Many of it was you, and so we're glad you're here today. Today, we're going to pick back up in the series that we started the first of the year called 10. And if you remember, kind of the premise of the series was very, very basic from this standpoint. Anytime you enter into a new year, most of the time when you come into a new year, there's this notion of kind of reflecting on some things, but also evaluating some things. And so maybe when you come into the new year, you begin to evaluate your life, your, your direction, your finances, your career, whatever the case may be. And I thought as we enter this new year, maybe we should take some time spiritually to evaluate our, some spiritual things in our lives, some spiritual areas in our lives. And so I ask you week one that as we're going to look at the, maybe four different areas and ask ourselves this question, on a scale of one to ten, where do I rate myself? Now, you know what I'm talking about, I say one to ten, because like Jason and I had this conversation. He's the guy that does the surveys at the end of the restaurant when you pay the bill. He does the surveys, and not just because you get a free meal, free drink, or free whatever. He just does them because that's the right thing to do. Many of us, how many, how many rest of us would say, I never do those surveys? You're scared to raise your hand. Most of you don't do them, right? And the thing is, why do they do them? Because they want to evaluate what was the level of our service and where can we improve on. And I think as believers, it's important for us to have a rhythm in our lives to evaluate where we're at. Because we're, if you're like Doug, it's really easy to go, I mean, I'm good. I've, how many times have you ever asked someone how you're doing? They go, I'm fine. And you go, you're not fine. Your face, your body language, not to mention the fire hydrant of tears coming down your face. Tell me you are not fine. Now, many of you know experience that in marriage when your wife's mad. And you go, Hi, are we okay? We're fine. Oh, no, we're not fine. But you know what I'm talking about, right? So let's evaluate. So we began week one going, okay, let's evaluate where are you at in your walk with Christ. Where are you at when it comes to your confidence in the Lord? Where are you at when it comes to this desperate need to be near the Lord? Where are you at when it comes to the passion to cry out to him? We looked at King David in Psalms 27, and we saw David, man, he just laid his heart out there. We saw David, who typically laments in a psalm, he basically said, listen, more than anything else, I just want to be near the Lord. He said this, I love this, I can't get out of my head. He said, to gaze at his beauty, I just want to be near God. How many of us can say, man, that's what I want? And we looked at these things about what does it mean to be, what, is it, what does our walk with Christ look like? I mean, do we have confidence in the Lord? Do we want to be near the Lord? I mean, where do we find ourselves and evaluate? Now, we're not evaluating just so you can write it down and go, you know what? This is kind of where I feel like I'm at. Where do we all want to be out of scale one to 10? Not a trick question. Where do we want to be? We want to be a 10. Now, we're, the, um, the kind of the bad news, good news is that's a journey we should be on. The good news is that, that that's a path that God wants us on. The bad news is only the moment that's going to happen is that one day when we see Jesus. Because when we see him, we will be like him, and then we'll be perfected. He who began a good work in us on that day will complete it. And so we need to evaluate ourselves. So today what I want us to evaluate is, look, I want us to take a look at and evaluate the strength of our love for the Lord. We talked about where you're at in your walk, like your confidence, your, your, your crying out to the Lord, your desire to be near him. But I want to specifically kind of drill down a little further and let's evaluate where you're at when it comes to your love for the Lord. Now, probably most of you in the room, if I ask you the question privately, like, where are you at when you love for the Lord? I love Jesus. I love the Lord. 
But then when I ask you, well, how do you see that evident? How do you, how do you feel like your love for the Lord is becoming evident in how you live your life? How do you feel like your love for the Lord is becoming evident in the relationships you have? How do you feel like your love for the Lord is coming out in your behavior, your actions, and your attitudes? Many of you would back up and go, well, I love the Lord, right? Because we don't like looking at our behaviors. We don't like looking at our actions because the truth of the matter is when we evaluate those things, sometimes they don't reflect a love for the Lord. They reflect a love for for a lot of other stuff. And so what I want us to do today, I want to look at a passage of scripture, basically four or five verses that we can look at that God tells us what it means to really love him. Now we can look at a lot of different passages, but the passage we're going to look at today is a passage we can look at and go, if I truly say that I love the Lord, on a scale of one to 10, if this is where I find myself going, these things have to be part of my life. They are, these things shouldn't be part of my life. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 is where we're going to be. And some of you immediately know, Doug, you're in the Ten Commandments. Yes, we're going to be in the Ten Commandments. And we're just going to look at the first three commandments. So if you would stand with me in honor of reading God's Word. We're going to begin reading in verse 1 and read through verse 7. And this is what the Word of the Lord says. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make not for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or that is on earth or beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for the Lord, for I, the Lord your God, am a what? A jealous God. We don't talk about that enough. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me, keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. And God, I thank you. I know that song was new to us, but Lord, what a great declaration this morning that we know you by a thousand names. You are, you are our Jehovah Jireh. You are our provider. You are Jehovah Shalom. You are our peace. You are the lily of the valley. You are the bright and morning star. We, we know you by so many names, and I thank you, Lord, that you are de- deserving of all those names. But what we need to realize in giving you those names and declaring those things about you, that not any one specific name totally encompasses the majesty, the glory, and the magnificence of who you are. That's why we've got to have so many. So God, I pray today as we get into your word, as we dive into Exodus 20, that we would realize you've marked out for us that if we truly say we love you, this is what loving you looks like. So God, be with us, bless us, and challenge our hearts this morning. For it's in your precious son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. Now, today, there's really three things, and it's the first three commandments that I want you to notice this morning. If we're truly going to say that we love God, God has ascribed to us, here's what loving me looks like. And the first one's found in verse 3. Go back to verse 3. He said, you shall have no other gods before me. If we love God, first and foremost, we should have no other gods. I think we'll put that on the screen because that's the first point. We shall have no other gods before him. Now, if you backed up, you don't have to back up right now, but if you look just before that, did you pick up on what God had done to Israel? I mean, obviously, he's given these Ten Commandments to Moses on the mountaintop, but he's making this great statement. And did you pick up on what he said? He said, I am the Lord, your God. 
who brought you out of Egypt, out of the hands of slavery. I mean, I love how God starts the Ten Commandments because he starts with, just remember who I am for a moment. I am your Lord, your God. In other words, I love you, I care for you, I've endeared myself to you, I am your Lord. In fact, if you read on in the Old Testament, God even gets really profound when he starts saying stuff like this, uh, I am your God and you will be my people. In other words, I belong to you, you belong to me. I know, Israel, that you live in a world of polytheism where we, or, you know, where, we, or, where we just kind of worship a multitude of different gods, but I want you to know that I am the Lord. Singular, definite article, the Lord. There is no other Lord but me. I am the Lord, your God. I belong to you, and you belong to me. And he says, and I brought you out of the hands of Egypt. In other words, I am also your deliverer. Do you remember, do you remember the 400 years you were in slavery? Do you remember how the Egyptians mistreated you and, and, they, and they dealt with you and they handled you? Do you remember that season of your life? Guess what? I brought you out. Nobody else brought you out. I brought you out. In fact, if you go back to Exodus 3, I heard the cries of my people and I raised up this guy named Moses. Some of you know him as Charlton Heston. I raised up this guy named Moses and I sent him to you because I, I wanted to deliver you. I, not anybody else, I'm your deliverer. I brought you out. And you notice what he says? I brought you out of the hands of slavery. Once you were slaves, now you're free. Now am I your deliverer? I'm your rescuer. You were living a life of slavery. Now you have a life of free. Now when I read that, when I come to the Ten Commandments, before I jump in the commandments, there's something that should be sobering about that. Because what God is telling Israel through these words is the same thing that we need to be reminded of every single day of our life. That we once were slaves to sin, weren't we? We once were slaves to sin. But because we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are now free from the bondage of sin, and now we are free in Christ. And we don't sing about that enough. We don't celebrate that enough. We don't talk about it enough because no longer does sin have control over me anymore. I am free in Christ. And what the Son has set free is what? Free indeed. And we need to spend some time realizing that what God is telling Israel is true for us. He is our rescuer. He is our deliverer. He is the Lord my God. He is the Lord, your God. And because he's the Lord, because we are his people, because he's delivered us and rescued us, look what he says, because that as a result, you are to have no other gods. Now, if you were to translate that, here's what he's saying. You are to have nothing that takes my place. You are to have nothing that you put ahead of me. You are to have nothing that you view as equivalent to me. You are to have no other gods. Nothing instead of me, nothing in place of me, nothing that is equivalent to me. What, what God is telling the people of Israel is this. What I am demanding of you, listen, what I am demanding of you is 100% singular devotion. It's just me. Now, if we really thought about that, that's a pretty big deal, isn't it? In fact, you know, when you read the New Testament, sometimes I get questions from time to time, but when you read the New Testament, some people like look at the words of Jesus and they go, okay, that's a little abrasive. Like for example, when people wanted to follow Jesus, in fact, in, in Matthew's gospel, there's like three occasions right in a row where somebody wanted to follow Jesus and they said, hey, Jesus, we want to follow you. We'll go wherever you want to go. Great. He said, well, before we go with you, though, let me, let me go uh, bury my dead father. In other words, let me, my dad's about to die. Let me go wait till he's dead. I'll bury my dad. I'll collect the inheritance, and then I'll follow you. 
And Jesus goes, well, how about we just let the dead bury the dead and you come follow me right now? And you look at that, how insensitive is it? It's not insensitive. And the next guy comes up and says, hey, I want to follow you, but let me first go tell my family goodbye. I mean, that seems reasonable, doesn't it? Hey, you're going to go on a long trip. Hey, let me go back and tell my family goodbye, and then I'll come follow you. And Jesus says, listen, no man who puts his hand to the plow and turns his head backwards is fit to be my disciple. Like, that's kind of abrasive. It's not abrasive. What Jesus is saying is exactly what we see in this first commandment, that what God requires of us is singular devotion. That's why Jesus says, unless you hate your father, your mother, your brother, your sisters, you're not fit to be my disciple. Not that God wants you to, and some of your siblings are like, great, I have permission to hate my sibling. And that's not it at all, right? But what he's saying is our love for people compared to our love for him should look like hatred. See, our love for our Heavenly Father doesn't even come close to how much I love my wife. Doesn't even come close to how much I love my boys or my, my grandson. I mean, doesn't it come, I mean, when I compare my love for people versus my love for God, it shouldn't even come close. My love for people should almost look like hatred. That's how strong my love for God should be. So Jesus is just reiterating this first commandment. He's saying, I want total devotion and total loyalty from you. If you love me, you can have no other gods. There can't, and what I love about this is because this first commandment is all about who, not only who we can worship, but it's all about who's on the throne of our life. Now, you may not believe this, but it's true. There's something on the throne of your life. There's something that's dictating your actions, your behavior, how you deal with your marriage, how you deal with your kids, how you work in the workplace. There's something that's guiding, navigating, and directing your thoughts and your life. There's something on the throne of your life. And here's what God, our Heavenly Father, is saying. It's I'm the only one equipped and qualified to occupy the throne of your life. It's just me. It's not me and finances. It's not me and a career. It's not me plus anything. It's just me. And by the way, if you try to put something ahead of me, I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay with that. In fact, did you notice there what he says? He says, you should put no other gods, and then he uses this phrase, before me. Now, the English writers who, who translate it into English language, they use this phrase before me to let us know kind of the implications of what God was saying, that you cannot put anything before him, ahead of him, in place of him, equivalent to him. But this phrase before me is actually a terrible translation. It should translate, in the original Hebrew, it translates like this. And I won't say it in Hebrew, I'll say it in English. He said, you shall have no other gods against me. Now, what God is saying is that when you put something on the throne of your life, instead of me, it is my enemy. It is in opposition to me. And he's like, I'm not okay with that. So he says, if you love me, if you truly love me, you shall have no other gods before me. You should have singular devotion to me, and listen, and to me alone. Now, I know some of you guys are familiar with the Old Testament, but listen, we all know that Israel struggled with this, didn't they? The nation of Israel, the nation that God chose to be his chosen people, they struggled with idolatry. They struggled putting other gods before him. And you know, sometimes the struggle, I mean, you look at them like, well, why do you, what were you guys thinking? Well, they probably could look at us and say the same thing. But there was a, there's a lot of stories, and I won't use all of them, but there's one story in particular that jumps to mind, is that when Israel finally made it out of the desert, when Joshua led them across the waters, and they finally made it into the promised land, there was a reality, a thing that kind of reality checked for them. There was a moment where it dawned on them, hey, guess what? Our ancestors only knew slavery. Our parents only knew a desert, and they died because they rebelled against God. Oh, so we're going we're to kind of obey for a little while. 
But guess what we don't know how to do? We've been given some land. Guess what we don't know how to do? We don't know how to farm land. Because when we were in the desert, man, there was Big Macs from the sky falling down. That's how we had, that's how we ate every day. We had manna, right? And God provided water. I mean, God provided for us. But now we're in a land, and guess what? I don't know how to farm this land. I don't know if anybody in the room is like, like, I don't know how to farm anything. I, if I grow it, I can kill it. I mean, it's probably not going to grow, and it's probably, I mean, it's going to be terrible. I couldn't farm anything. And that's what they ran into. So guess what they did? Instead of going to God saying, God, we, we don't know how to do this. Would you give us strength? Would you give us wisdom? Wisdom that obviously exceeds our own knowledge. They didn't do that. You know what they did? They went to their neighboring area, the neighboring country, the Canaanites. And they go, hey, guess what? We don't know how to farm. We've just been in the desert for 40 years. Could you help us out? And the Canaanites are like, sure, I'll help you out. But you've got to worship our gods. And Israel was faced with a decision that moment. Either we say, no, we can put no other gods before him. We're only going to serve God and God alone. Or we can say, you know what? Farming is kind of important. It's kind of one of those things that we got to know if we're going to survive and live in this land. So guess what Israel did? They went and worshiped the gods of the Canaanites. Because they really knew how to, they needed to know how to farm. And right out of the gate, early on in their, in their history as a nation, they gave in and broke the first commandment. Now, here's the thing I want to say to you. I think we break the first commandment, too. I think we put other things. Now, I don't, I'm not saying, I don't think any of you in the room, I hope not, none of you in the room have an, uh, an idol in your household. You probably don't have a little Buddha in your household. You probably don't have an idol that can, what we would think about in this regard. But I do think we have some things in our life we put ahead of God. I do think some of us have some things in life that we put in place of God. I do think that some of us even put people in a place in our life that we think they're equivalent to God. Well, Doug, I would never do that. Yes, you do. How many of us have had to make a decision in life and we began, maybe you started off praying about it, but then you weren't satisfied with what God said, so you went to a friend thinking what they said would at least be better than what you thought God was telling you. What have you done in that moment? You've made that person, finite, flawed, sinless person, equivalent to the almighty, sovereign wisdom of our God. I think we do it all the time. Can I tell you how I think we do it? I think money for some people is our God. It's a thing we put ahead of God. It's a thing we put equivalent to God. It's a thing we replace God with, the pursuit of money. Listen, one thing that I'm learning, especially for those of you in your 20s and under, listen, one thing I'm learning is the generations you guys are living in, there's something I want to call, they're chasing the almighty dollar. People are chasing and chasing and chasing. We're never satisfied with what we have. We always want what? More. more. And we're going to talk about that next week. We always want more, right? I think money sometimes. I think success can be something that replaces God or becomes ahead of God in life. That we want to succeed in our career. And maybe our motives are, you know, I want to succeed so I can bless my family. Pastor, I want to succeed so I can make more, so I can give more to the church. Well, great. But does that become the thing that occupies the throne of your life? Let me tell you one more that I wrestled with. And that is extracurricular activities. How many of you got a hobby in the room? Some of you are like, I don't know if I should raise my hand. Come on, come on, come on. you got a hobby. It's something you like to do, okay? All right, so we all have those things, right? But is it possible that extracurricular activities that you like to do can rob you and take place on the throne of your life? And let me be even more specific where I struggle with my kids. I mean, if you've got kids and you've got more than one kid, I mean, you know that you're going a million different directions. And isn't it easy to let those extracurricular activities take over the throne of their lives and your lives and become the God that you worship? Now, is money bad? No. Is success bad? No. Is extracurricular activities bad? Absolutely not. But when we let those things take priority and become the most important thing in our lives and occupy the throne of our lives, they are 
an idol. Now, here's something I want you to know. And I'm not going to go to a verse to point it out. You can read all the Old Testament see it, and the New Testament. That when we have idols in our life, God will discipline us. When we let things creep into our life that occupy his space and his territory and give us the guidance that only should come from him, he will discipline us. Well, Doug, how do you know that? Well, you can go back and look at the story of Solomon. Solomon was David's son. He was known as the, one of the wisest men to ever live outside of Jesus, obviously. He's kind of the go-to answer, right? But he was the wisest man who ever lived. In fact, when Solomon first became king, God said, what do you want? <laughs> I'll give you land. I'll give you wives. I'll give you money. I, what, what do you want? And you know what Solomon asked for? Wisdom. I mean, you think, this guy's sharp. He was sharp until the end of his life. As Solomon got older, Solomon began to become soft in the areas of idolatry, and he began to let idols creep their way back into the nation of Israel. And God was so upset with Solomon, you know what he did? He took the kingdom away from him. He told Solomon, listen, you have so gone away. You've so broken this commandment of no other gods. You've so done it, not only as a person, but as the king of the most, the greatest nation ever. You've done this. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take it away from you, and I'm going to divide this one great nation into two nations. I'm taking your kingdom away. Listen, when we have idols in our life, let's not stray away from. God may take some things away from us because we wrongly put some things on the throne of our life. I don't know about you, but I still believe God is a God who disciplines. Do you? He does. And the thing about it is, the question I think we need to ask before we go to the second thing is, have we allowed some things to replace the Lord? Have we allowed some things to be on the throne of our life? Maybe even this morning. What is dictating your life, your decisions, your behavior, how you do life? Is this Christianity thing something you do, or is it who you are? And listen, if it's something you do, then something else is occupying the throne of your life, and you get rid of it. So he says, if you love me, first and foremost, have no other gods before me. And then the second thing he says, it's found in verse 4 through 6, look there. He says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is the water under the sea. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the, of the children of the third and fourth generation and those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands who love me and keep my what? Amen. See, that's something we've got to keep coming back to. If we love him, we will keep his commandments. And the first commandment being, have no other gods before me. The second commandment being, having no carved image. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. I've spent about four weeks on this one commandment. Now, just because there's more to it than we just typically look at. This commandment is actually tied greatly with the first commandment. They kind of go hand in hand, but there's some differences here. And in fact, I believe it was Spurgeon in my study that probably helped me the best delineate commandment one versus commandment two. Commandment one is all about idolatry, a false god. Commandment two is about iconology, images, where images become idols in our life. Now, here's why God gave this commandment here. Real quickly, here's why God gave it, because God understood something that we need to understand, that there is nothing in earth, there's nothing on earth, there's no image that adequately represents Yahweh. There is no image. There is no man-made thing we could ever do that would adequately represent the totality of who God is, his character, his nature, and who he is. Oh, wait a minute, Doug, wait a minute, Doug. There was a burning bush, I know. That would have been cool, wouldn't it? 
But can I just say this? That burning bush only reflected a small piece of God's glory. It wasn't all of God. Oh, wait a minute. What about the, what about, what, what about the Ark of the Covenant, right? God, God even gave instructions how to build the Ark of the Covenant. Well, what was the Ark of the Covenant about? The Ark of the Covenant was reminding the people who God is. That's why the very tarp of the Ark was these cherubim, these angels that were carved out. And in the middle of them was the mercy seat, letting them know that he's a God who is merciful. And the Ark of the Covenant only represented the mercy of God and the grace of God. It represented the presence of God. Wherever God was, God says, I want you to know, if this Ark isn't with you, I'm with you too. So it didn't picture the whole thing of who God is. It's just a small fracture that God is merciful, that God is gracious, that God is present. But did that picture the whole big thing of encompass all of who God is? No. So he says, listen, I don't want you to have any carved images. And here's the thing I think we need to wrestle with. Because God had not revealed himself in a visible form, he cannot be worshipped through a visible image. Now I'm going to say it again. This might be worth writing down because some of you are going to have to chew on this. God has, because God has not revealed himself in visible form, even though he's given us snit, you know, snippets, even though God has not revealed himself in physical, visible form, he cannot be worshipped through a visible image. There is no image you and I could ever create that would totally encompass who God is. But there's one exception to this, and it's nothing that we created. Some of you already got it right. In the book of Colossians, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That when we see Jesus, we've seen God. Now, wouldn't that be cool if you were a disciple and realize when I'm looking at my Lord Jesus, I'm looking at the very face of God? Sure. But Jesus is the only exception. He's the only one. There's no carved image. There's no graven image. There's nothing that we could create that would totally encompass all who God is. And the reason God is making this commandment to them is he wants them to know that I want you to realize something, that your worship is not about what I look like. Your worship is about who I am. I don't want you to be occupied with what I look like. I want you to be occupied with who I am. I am sovereign. I am Lord. I'm creator. I'm sustainer. I'm provider. I mean, you just keep going on and on. I'm all those things. So an image, listen, an image can encapsulate all who I am. So don't put me in a box. Don't create something thinking that's the perfect representation of who I am. And listen, even the cross that some of you wear is not the total picture of who God is. I've had people before tell me, you know, I know, I know that God is with me, and they hold up the cross. That's just a piece of sterling silver, maybe, that may even turn your neck green. I don't know. But the way we know God is with us is the Holy Spirit lives in me. I don't need a daggum cross. I've got the Holy Spirit in me, right? Now, listen, this whole idea of a, of a graven image, there's a story in Scripture. You can turn there later because I'm going to share some things about the story that maybe you've never heard before. But in Exodus chapter 32, we see this second commandment broken in a huge way. Exodus chapter 32, Moses is now back up on the mountain with God. And God has given him instruction in exactly about the tent of meetings, how they're to build it, all the things that are to entail in it. And while they're gone, he's gone 40 days and 40 nights, and while he's gone, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, the people there, they get restless. And do you remember what they did? They went to the head honcho priest, Aaron. Said, all right, Aaron, Moses is gone. We don't know if he's coming back. We want you to create for us gods that can move us forward, that we can follow going forward. And so they asked that. Now, one thing we need to understand when you look at that passage, if later you read Exodus chapter 32, you need to understand something. You need to understand it in context. The requests they were making in context. In fact, all that Israelites had ever known before God showed up uh, with these 10 plagues is different gods. Egypt worshiped 
Tons of gods. I mean, there was a God for everything. God of the sun, God of the moon, God of fertility. I mean, there was a God of everything. So polytheism is all they ever knew. So it was natural that when they request this of Aaron, they're saying, we need what we've ever known. We just need gods that are going to move us forward. But what I believe, and when you read Exodus chapter 32, what Aaron does is Aaron creates a golden calf, as we know. But I believe Aaron was not trying to replace God. He was trying to make God visible. Now, follow me for a moment. Some of, you, some of you Bible students, track with me for a moment. The rest of you, you're like, oh, that sounds great, and move on. That's fine. But the rest of you, stay with me. I don't believe Aaron was trying to replace God. I believe he was just trying to make God visible. Here's why I know that. Because this common expression of, you know, create us for us gods, that can, the plural, they can follow us, that was just an expression of the day. It wasn't something like, hey, we want 16 different gods. Could you create that, Aaron? Let's move forward. And we also know Aaron wasn't trying to replace God because of different things. How many calves did Aaron create? One, one golden calf, right? Singular, one golden calf, representing that the one they followed was what? One God. Now, why do they do a golden calf? Some of you have been asked that before. Well, cows in that day, not today as much, but in that day, they were viewed as powerful. In fact, in many, in many circles, they are worshipped even to today. They were viewed as very powerful, and gold represented what? Royalty. So even in the creation of this golden calf, what Aaron is saying is, even though it was all wrong, he messed up, the thing is, he wasn't trying to replace God. And you get that? He wasn't trying to replace him. He was just trying to take an invisible God and make him visible. Why? Because every other nation had one. They may worship the God of Marmaduke, of, of the, the Babylonian God, but they had a visible, physical image that they would worship, in essence, in worshiping that Marmaduke God. And so he wasn't trying to replace them. He was trying to make him visible. So he creates this golden calf because this golden calf represents power and it represents royalty. But he created one, not many. Another reason we know he wasn't trying to replace God is because when he said, hey, listen, here are the gods that, the gods that you want to follow for, the gods that you want to follow. He says, here's the gods that we're going to deliver you. Here, here's, the, here's what we're going to do. We're going to follow this calf because this is the gods who delivered you out of Egypt. Well, Aaron knew that there was a God who delivered him out of Egypt, Right? Because if, they were, if he was going to create multiple gods and then follow him, he never would have gone back to Egypt because it was Yahweh who brought him out of Egypt. It was Jehovah God who brought him out of Egypt. It was one God who got him out of Egypt, and they would have known that. But here's the big reason we know that Aaron wasn't trying to replace God, just trying to create an image of God, is when he says, after this is all done, we're going to create a feast to capital the Lord. Capital. So in Aaron's mind, he was trying to create that which was invisible and making it visible. And God said, he blew it, buddy. That golden, and I know we think it's silly, but in any way did that golden calf encompass and encapsulate all of who God is, his nature, his character, his power, and his authority? Did it come close to that? No. But that's what they created. And so Aaron wasn't trying to replace God. Aaron was trying to make him visible. He was trying to create an image of God. And that's why when you think about it, that's the problem they had. They tried to worship God on their way of doing it. They wanted to worship God the way they wanted to worship God. So every other nation had these little statues that represent the God they worship. So Israel thought, we need one. Why do we need one? Because when other nations come in and attack you and they see this is the God you worship and if they look big and bad and tough, they might stray away because that brings safety, that brings security, that brings identity. So if every other nation's got one, guess what? We need one. It's like living in Florida. Everybody else has got a pool. Guess what? 
We need a pool, right? And that's the mindset that they bought into. And so they wanted to worship God the way they wanted to worship God. And the reality is this. They thought to bring safety, security, and identity. And that's why God says this. Don't forget this. The Lord your God is a what? Jealous, Jealous God. You know what God is saying there? I mean, if you read it in context, and you go back to, to Genesis 32, and understand what I'm saying, when you go back and you really read this, here's what he's saying. If you love me, you will have no other gods before me. You won't put anything in my place. And if you really love me, you won't try to put me in a box. You won't try to let things that come into your life that give you significance, stability, safety, and identity. Guess where your identity should come from? Him. Where should our sense of safety and security come from? Him. And if you look at the story here, these guys thought a golden calf would provide all that. And so what God says, listen, you need to know I'm a jealous God. Here's what that means. I refuse to tolerate something else robbing me of my glory. You may worship, the, you may think this golden calf represents me, but here's what I know. Your image of worship, listen, hear me, your image of worship will eventually become your object of worship. The image you've created will eventually become the thing that you worship. And God is saying, I'm a jealous God. Why? Because I want you to know nothing, nothing, nothing. I'm not going to tolerate this because nothing is going to rob me of my glory. And I'm not going to tolerate this. You know why? Because he said, we're here. I'm not going to tolerate this because if you keep living this kind of life, it's going to affect not only you, but generations after you, the third generation, the fourth generation. It's going to affect everybody. So if you love me, don't lean on anything else to give you a sense of identity, security, other than me. Now, I have to be honest, as I was thinking about this, I even texted a little bit with Kent last night. I'm like, okay, how do you think we do this today? You know, I, I don't think any of you have any little carved images that you carved out with your whittle with your pocket knife and set up on your house or a little bobblehead you made that represents. I mean, I don't think you have any of that stuff. But how do we break this commandment? And I think here's how we break it today. I mean, we, we technically don't have the carved images like they had, but how do we, at least in Christianity, but how do we break it today? I think we break it this way. When we allow different people, different things, anything in our life to take up not only the throne of our life, but also give us a sense of identity, security, and safety, other than the person and the work of Jesus. Here's what I mean. I love being a pastor, but that's not what defines me. I love being a husband. That's not what defines me. I love being a dad and a pop-pop. That's grandpa for some of you who don't know. I love being that. But guess what? That doesn't define me. You know what defines me? Is that I was a sinner, wretched, away from God, and Jesus died for me, and now I'm his. That's what defines me. My identity is not in my job. My identity is not in my marriage. My identity is not in my career. My identity is only found in the person and the work of Jesus. And we break this commandment when we find our identity in anything except him. You're not just a police officer. You're a child of the Most High God. You're not just a factory worker. You're a child of the Most High God. What defines you and brings you safety and security is who you know and who you belong to, nothing else. There's room for one on the throne of your life, and it's him. And he alone gives you your identity. He alone keeps you safe and secure. And there's one more thing. So he says, if you love me, have no other gods before me. If you love me, don't find your identity anywhere else. And last of all, if you love me, verse 7. Here's the last thing, verse 7. You shall, make no, you shall not take the Lord your God's name in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The third thing is this. If you love me, don't take my name in vain. Now, 
Why would he say that? Because his name is a reflection of his character. His name is a reflection of his reputation. So don't take my name in vain. Don't do anything that would be abusive or degrading to my name. Now, many of you think, well, I don't do that. Well, let me tell you three ways we take the Lord's name in vain, and I promise you we've broken one of these. First of all, profanely. Somebody with profanity. We attach God's name to a very terrible word, right? You, I'm not going to say anything. You know what I'm talking about, right? We do that. Or here's another way we do it profanely is we swear on God's name. I swear to God. Whoa, whoa wait a minute. You've crossed the line when you said that, right? And I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but I guarantee you many of you in the room have said something like that. That's taking his name profanely when we use it cursing or we use it in a swearing way. Another way we take God's name is superficially. When we use it in a way that has no meaning, it has no reverence, and it has no authority. Like one of the things that gets me, my oldest son used to do this. In fact, when I was 16, I did, well, actually, when I was younger, I did this. And my dad, who wasn't really a, um, he, he wasn't a Jesus lover until later in life, but he at least expected the Lord's name. And I was a catcher in baseball. And, and quite frankly, I, I, was, I was okay. And, and all the people throwing me the ball, they were just doing terrible. At least that's what my view was. They were doing terrible. Wouldn't throw it to me. He's always having to dig it out of the dirt. And I kept saying the one phrase you've heard over and over and over again, which I won't repeat it out loud, was, oh my, and you know the rest of it, right? And I don't forget, I said it one time, my dad said, if you said it again, Doug, I'm going to slap you right in the mouth. Now, today he would go to jail for that. That's what he said back then. Guess what? I said it again. And guess what? He popped me right on the mouth. I mean, in front of all my friends, he popped me right on the mouth and said, now, instead of crying, run the fence. So he, nobody would see me crying. Because he understood that the name of God is so sacred that you've got to be careful with it. And he knew that me using it in a superficial way was breaking this commandment. I was taking the Lord's name in vain because I was using it in a way that had no value, had no authority, and had no reference. And I, listen, even today, I get so weary when I hear people talking and say, oh, my, and they finish it out. No, his name is holy. His name is righteous. In fact, for so long, the only thing he would say about himself is, I am, because you can't encapsulate me. And every name that God has given us to, to speak to him by only gives us a small piece of who he is. And so he said, listen, don't take my name in vain. And some of us do it that way. But then here's another way we do it. It's hypocritically. That's when we claim to live under his name, but we live like the world. Now, this is a really good study we ought to come back to sometime. But listen, if you call yourselves a follower of Jesus Christ and you are not living like a follower of Jesus Christ, you are taking his name in vain because you're operating under the banner of Christ and you're living like the devil. And we are hypocritically taking the Lord's name in vain. And so he commands them, don't take the Lord's name in vain. And then he gives this warning as we close. And if you do so, I'm going to discipline you. If you do so, my name is so holy and so righteous, you're going to have to be held accountable for it. So when we come to this, this, these first three Ten Commandments, what we learn is this, is that our love for the Lord should be reflected in, first of all, like the first commandment, our unwavering devotion to Him and to Him alone. So let me ask you, where are you at in that? One to ten. Is He number one on the throne of your life? You keep trying to replace Him with something else. You keep trying to put something else ahead of him. You keep trying to put something equivalent to him. Where are you at in your walk with the, in your love for the Lord that you know that he, you have singular devotion to him and to him alone? Where are you at? Well, we also learned from these, these commandments is that if we truly love the Lord, that we will find our sense of identity and purpose and safety and security in him and in nothing else. Where are you at in that? 
Do you feel like your job makes you somebody? Do you feel like your money makes you somebody? Do you feel like what you know makes you somebody? Listen, your identity is found in that you're a child of the Most High God. You've been adopted in the family of God. That's what identifies you, not the rest of that stuff. Because the rest of that stuff, guess what? It's just temporary, right? It's just temporary. So one to ten, where are you at in that one? Then last of all, as we look at this, it reminds us that our love for the Lord should be reflected in our commitment to honor and to make much of his name. When you and I speak the name of Jesus, it'll be speaking his name in a way that is reverent, a way that is passionate, and a way that is honoring to him. And not only how we live, but how we talk. Where are you at in that? Well, Doug, I don't use his name profanely. Great. Do you swear with it? Well, not, maybe not. Are you, do you use it superficially? I do. Okay, stop. Do you do it hypocritically? Like you claim to be a follower of Christ, but if I were to talk to your coworkers, and I won't, or your neighbors, and I won't, and they said there's nothing about them that reflects Christ, you're living hypocritically. Are you willing, where are you at in that, and are you willing to change that? So here's my prayer this morning. On a scale of 1 to 10, where are you at in your love for the Lord? I mean, not what you think you're at, but where are you really at? Is he the one occupying the throne of your life? Is he the one that's given you your sense of identity? And he, is he the name which is above every other name that you speak and you give honor and glory to him and to him alone? Where are you at? And if you're a follower of Christ and you're struggling in one of those areas, I have a really good biblical word for you. You ready? You know what it is? Repent. Repent. Say, Lord, I've blown it. And I'm remorseful, I have regret, and I want to turn from what I'm doing, and I want to turn to putting you on the throne of my life. I want to turn to finding my identity in you, Lord. I want to turn and honor and lift up and magnify the name of Jesus above everything else. This morning, if you're a follower and you struggle in any of those areas, just repent. You may want to come to this altar and get on your knees and pray. You may want to find Jason over here and Pat and Willie over here and just say, would you pray with me? Would you encourage me this morning because I'm struggling? Or maybe just right there in your seat. We need to, you need to do business with God. I don't know. If you're a follower of Christ, 1 to 10, where are you at in your love for the Lord? Maybe some of you here today would say, you know what? I don't know where I'm at because I've never declared my love for the Lord. You keep talking about, Doug, every week how much God loves me and loves me. But today, maybe for the first time, you need to declare that. You need to say, Lord, I'm going to put down myself. I'm going to surrender my life. And I'm going to say, I love you with everything in me. And I'm going to give my life to you. And if you need to make that decision, I would love to talk to you. So where are you at this morning? And what decision do you need to make? And listen, here. Will you be faithful to make it? So right now, I'm going to ask everybody to stand with me if you would. Everybody stand. Everybody stand, every head bowed, and every eye closed. And let's just go to the Lord in prayer. God, I love you, and I thank you for today. And God, I know there's so much in these commandments, especially these three. Well, Lord, I just feel like as you were speaking to Moses and you were writing these commandments down, you just want to remind a nation that was beginning to form, a people that you had delivered, that this is what living a life loving you looks like. It looks like remem remembering that our devotion belongs to you and you alone. You alone deserve to be on the throne of our life. It looks like making sure that our identity comes from you, that we don't look to worldly things to hopefully encompass all of who you are because they all fall short. And if we really love you, Lord. We would never take your name in vain. In a profane way, a superficial way, or even a hypocritical way. 
So God, my prayer this morning is simple, that for those of us that are Christ followers, that your Holy Spirit would convict us. That we would repent. We've all blown it. We've all messed up. We've all let things creep its way into our lives and sit on the throne of our life today, Lord. And I'm just asking, would you help us call those things out? Would you help us remove those things and let you take your rightful place in our heart this morning? And that can only happen through repentance. So God, I pray for them. I pray that whether they come to the altar, whether they seek someone to pray with them, or they sit right there in their seat, Lord, that you would give us the courage and the strength to repent this morning. And then, Lord, I pray for maybe that person who's heard a lot about your love but has never declared their love for you. Would they do it today, Lord? Would they just take a step of courage? Maybe going to talk to Jason or Pat and Williamson, today I need to surrender my life to Christ. Would you help me do that? Or coming up to me after service is over going, I need to give my life to Christ. Would you help me do that? God, I pray for that person in the room that they would not leave this campus this morning without declaring their amazing love and devotion to you. God, we love you. We thank you. And you are everything that we need. You are the great I am. You've always been, and you always will be. And so, Father, today, for those of us that are struggling, I pray that as we continue to worship, we wouldn't feel a sense of, of, of just guilt but we would feel a sense of release, that we would declare and we would sing that we can come to you with anything, that we can run to you, that we can fall at your knees, and as our Heavenly Father, you will scoop us up like our Abba Father, our Daddy, and you will love on us, you will rebuke us, you'll correct us, but you will remind us how much you desperately love us. So God, I pray we'd experience that this morning. May your Holy Spirit put its big old arms around us this morning and remind us that we are dearly loved by you. So God, be with us. May we be faithful to respond to your leadership. For it's in your precious and your holy son's name we pray. Amen. If you need to come, the altar is open.